Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. I'm Simon Carley and I'm one of the associate editors on the journal and I'm going to be taking you through what's really interesting in the journal in the month of November 2016. So this month we have the highlights from the issue organised by my friend Richard Boddy, one of the other associate editors and a colleague of mine in Manchester in the emergency medicine. But unfortunately Rick's busy this week so I'm going to take you through the papers which he's selected as being of particular interest. So there's a whole range of stuff in the EMJ. Again, emergency medicine is such a wide specialty, and so it's right that our journal reflects that. And we're going to kick off with a paper from Cottrell et al. looking at the scores to predict serious illness in children. So Pew scores, paediatric early warning scores. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the concept of early warning scores in adults. There's more interest now in those from paediatrics. And there's clearly, arguably, a need for a validated physiological early warning score for kids in the PED. So what Cottrell have done is they've looked at two paediatric early warning scores, which have been sort of used quite widely in the UK. One of them has been developed with my colleagues in, in Manchester, which is the Royal Manchester Children's Hospital Early Warning Score, or MANCHUS. And the second one is something called the Pennine Acute Trust Paediatric Observation Pop Priority Score, or the PATPOPs. So these, this is kind of a Manchester derby, and if you're familiar with football, you'll know that Manchester derbies are a you know, pretty big thing. Normally it's City versus United, but in this case it's Pops versus Chews. And what they've done is they've looked across a population of just over 2,000 patients, um, incorporating the physiological manifestations and the other features of these scores to find out what predicts things like admission. And uh, cut a long story short, both of them do pretty well, but the POP score is slightly better statistically, but whether that's clinically important is moot. There's also an editorial by Julian Sandel and Ian McConaughey, um, looking at paediatric early warning scores in the ED. And that's quite interesting. And they, they look at across the range of things that we've done. And they recognise that, it, in particularly in paediatric emergency medicine, where a lot of the patients are admitted with relatively small traumatic injuries, it's difficult to have a one-size-fits-all model. And that's taken up again by Damien Rowland and Kersey Challen, a couple of my friends from Leicester and from Preston, who've done quite a nice review around paediatric early warning scores and again highlighted that we've really got to ask some serious questions about what it is we want them to predict, whether it's admission, whether it's admission to ICU, whether it's death, mortality, morbidity. And that tools which are developed in one area are not really transferable to others. So if you're interested in physiological scoring, if you're interested in prediction, if you're interested in paediatrics, then you really should get across all three of those articles to get an idea of, of where we're heading with this topic. Because so I know that there is more work coming here. I know there's been some quite significant studies funded in the UK which will look specifically in this area. So moving on, let's have a think about some of the other papers. There's a nice paper, really interesting approach actually, from Queensland, Australia, looking at the future of emergency care. And what they did is they got together a citizen's jury. So Scuffham and colleagues out there have got a group of people together and taken them through the complexities and the difficulties in deciding what we should be doing with emergency care. And their jury model, so it is a bit like a court and taking it through and, and making decisions about things, a really interesting way of looking at this type of problem. It's really intriguing, actually, and very relevant to what we're going to do. Interestingly, the people who came out of this were clearly amenable to alternative models of emergency healthcare delivery, so looking at things like allied health professionals and even decisions not to come to hospital. And I think if you're familiar with UK practice, that's that's been around for some time. They were also really looking at things like co-payments, so whether or not people should um, put additional payments in for emergency care, which they weren't particularly 
unhappy about, but they were very unhappy about people paying for priority, which again has been something which has been suggested in a private health service where you can pay to get better care. They're pretty much against that. So I thought this was really interesting as an approach. We do need to engage with the public. It's emergency medicine is a public service. And I think getting some better ideas about what the public wants, what the public would expect and what they would accept is going to be very relevant with an ageing population and increasing demands on emergency care across the world, really. So I thought this was an interesting approach. And if you if that's the sort of thing and you're struggling with a number of people coming through the door, I think you'll be interested in seeing what this is. And of course, that's related to productivity. We're all thinking about productivity issues and about how we can do more with less people in more constrained environments. And it is pretty tough. And there is a big balance at the moment between getting the work done versus doing good quality care in some places. I mean, we've got to accept that that is actually the reality. And there's an interesting paper this month by Moffat et al. And I think you should read this really. Because it is looking at productivity and the and the difficulties and the balances that individuals have with this concept and the requirement for it coming into our EDs. So, it, I mean, if you're the sort of person you sometimes feel that measuring productivity in the emergency department has the potential to create a dehumanised production line, and I think many of us do then you should really give this a read. And again, this is a qualitative type study, um, which is also very interesting. So it, it really digs into the depth of how people feel. So they use semi-structured interviews with healthcare practitioners in an ED, and they explored their feelings really about the notion of productivity. And uh, the findings, I think, aren't, they aren't totally disastrous, actually. They're, they're really heartening in some respects. And I think they will kindle that warm feeling that we should have as emergency physicians. Because what they've done is they've looked at this difficulty and this sort of complexity of reconciling what people will perceive as caring and good quality care with the need and the, the realisation that productivity is important. And what comes out in this is this clear need to retain the compassion in our practice, to promote an appropriate balance between care and efficiency and to avoid this sort of sausage factory mentality, to quote one of the participants. So if you're struggling with that concept and you're feeling overworked and that the department is working very hard, I think it's it's so important that we have individuals and people within it that still retain that importance around care, compassion, empathy and understanding that there is a balance. Moving on, we've got a, a nice paper looking at SUPAR. SUPAR is a new biomarker of serious illness, or is it? So in emergency medicine, we, we're quite interested, and certainly myself and Rick, of course, are interested in biomarkers looking at um, cardiac disease. But what about other illnesses? So we're getting more and more accustomed to using biomarkers, but many of them lack specificity for any particular condition. Um, but they can potentially provide important information. So lactate could be considered such the same. So that's, you know, it's a useful biomarker, but it's not terribly specific. And we've been using it a lot more as emergency physicians, and it's, it's crept into a lot of protocols. It may sort of suggest that we're in the new dawn of a new age, maybe, of biomarkers and our traditional binary thinking about diagnostics, whereby tests can simply tell us whether a patient does or does not have a particular disease. It, it's starting to feel a bit crude, really. We're talking more about prognostic biomarkers and ways that we can predict probability and that's certainly some of the work that Rick's been doing around high sensitive troponin for instance. So Rasmussen in this issue have looked at SUPAR um, at the time of admission uh, to an acute medical unit in a cohort of about 4,000 patients and they showed that this was better at predicting mortality and the need for hospital readmission even when they adjusted for confounders. And the findings you know, pretty impressive really and I think we'll need to have a look a little bit more about this as a 
diagnostic tool and I suspect we'll be seeing more around this area. And for those of you who don't know what SUPAR is, SUPAR is soluble urokinase plasminogen activator receptor. So there you go. Um, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue, but it might actually be useful in the future. And then finally, or not quite finally, but the next paper we're going to talk about is one which I think is very important for the wider readership of the EMJ. And it's something which uh, my friend Stefan Bruins has been talking about when he he's a editor of the African Journal of Emergency Medicine, uh, works out in South Africa. And the disconnect between what we talk about a lot in the UK and a lot around the, the uh, developed world, or high-income countries, which is probably a better term. Um, and a lot of the evidence and a lot of the work that's done is around those type of publications and those type of departments. And there is a bit of a gap, really, when we start to talk about um, lower and middle-income countries, about the evidence which is out there and the understanding of the burden of disease in them. So... What they've done in this study, this is Chang et al. They've, they've, we know that there's surprisingly little about the relationship between emergency care provision and the impact of that on health internationally. And emergency physicians might expect that a failure to provide adequate emergency care would lead to a greater mortality and morbidity from such conditions. So what Chang has done with colleagues is looked at 40 countries and they found that all 15 of the major global causes of mortality, so like cardiovascular disease and stroke and stuff, can present as an, as an emergency and they identified that if you don't have good access to emergency care that's clearly going to be associated with a higher mortality and morbidity and if you take that that's quite sobering reading really because it demonstrates that there's a huge unmet need out there in many countries for access to emergency care things that we take for granted and we worry about the quality actually in many areas of the world it's just completely absent and i think we do have a responsibility and, an, and a role to sort of understand that what we're doing in our high-income developed countries is very different to what's available across the world and that there's a huge unmet need there. So I thought that was very interesting. There's a couple of other things I want you to have a look at. You can have a look at the best bets, of course. There's a couple of interesting ones there this week, uh, edited by Bernard Foire, again, one of my colleagues here in Manchester, looking at tranexamic acid use for nosebleeds, uh, which is interesting, and the use of a lidocaine for renal colic, intravenous lidocaine, which is very interesting, something I've not come across before, and they're worth a look. And, of course, I want you to get online and look at the blogs. We've got a couple of blogs out this month um, with Rob and Chris, looking at things like the, the weekend effect, the paper that came out of Oxford, looking at whether or not major trauma patients suffer from this this supposed weekend effect where people are more likely to die at the weekends they don't unsurprisingly uh, but it's really important and quite politically quite politically sensitive in the UK and then we've got a nice review of a paper that was published in the journal on the management of neurogenic shock which challenges some of the dogma that we have around neurogenic shock so there's quite a lot to do there. Oh, just lastly, if you're really into a physics, if you're a bit of a physics nerd, then you'll remember that paper in The Lancet looking at the modified Valsalva technique, the revert trial, and how when you blow on a plunger to generate a force to try and uh, get people to Valsalva down so you can revert their SVT, people in the original study, I think they used a manometer, but people have also suggested that you could use a syringe. And if you're a physics geek, 
then please have a look at the letters just at the end of the journal this week where we have a colleague from Poland called Lezak Prestras. I'm sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly, um, which breaks down that actually blowing on a syringe really isn't quite the same. So if you're a physics nerd, then please read that. It's actually quite interesting. And there's a good response from the original authors in the journal as well. So that's the highlights from the issue this month in November. I hope you read the journal. I hope you get online, have a look at the blogs, uh, follow us on Twitter, of course, uh, subscribe to the blogs, read the paper, get involved and enjoy your emergency medicine. Thank you.